Today's episode is presented by Yelp. Yelp's mission is to connect people with great local businesses. They're also helping hospitality professionals connect with each other. Join us on December 17th for a virtual town hall. Meet Chef Jet Tila and ask him questions that directly relate to your business. You'll be able to share your thoughts and to help create a path forward for all of us. Click the link in the show notes to register for this free event. Now here we go. Millions of workers are struggling to feed their children, to pay the rent, to stay in their homes, to pay electricity and food bills. Um, to six million of these workers lost their jobs. Sixty percent, six zero, were not able to access unemployment insurance because in most states, they were told their sub-minimum wage plus tips was too low to meet the minimum threshold to qualify for benefits. That was such a slap in the face. Welcome to Full Comp, a show offering insight into the future of the hospitality industry, featuring restaurateurs, thought leaders, and innovators, served up on the house. Are you ready to level up? The Pineapple Post has launched, and I'd like for you to be a part of it. It's a newsletter for people like you, people who want to learn and improve. It's delivered every Sunday, and it's packed with stories, videos, and audio content from the brightest minds in our industry. We're covering the latest news, innovations, and trends to inform and inspire the way you do business. When you're serious about your work and you're ready to take it to the next level, the Pineapple Post is here to help. You can sign up at pineapplepost.news. I hope you check it out. Twenty twenty has been the most educational year of my life. It's amazing what you see when you actually take a moment to look around. I've spent the last twenty years in this industry blind to the struggles of so many. Well, my eyes are open now, and I'm ready to become part of the solution. Today, I sat down with Saru J. Raman of One Fair Wage, and we discussed the inequities in our industry and what we can do to change them. We start today's conversation with a little background on Saru and her path to service. The thing that's driven me my whole life is a deep sense of injustice, uh, you know, both in the community that I grew up in, the injustices my parents faced, my community faced, traveling to India to see my family in India and seeing the injustice of most people who live in deep poverty in India. So I think my whole life I've felt this deep anger at injustice and my the main motivating force and driver for me has been having the tools to fight injustice effectively. And it's one thing to perceive the injustice, but for you, it translated into activism. Can yeah. you talk about that? Uh, I don't know. I, it's just a, a pet peeve of mine as a human being to believe there are things that are out there that need to be changed. And I'm not somehow actively trying to change them. If you know something is unjust and you do nothing about it, you're part of the problem in my opinion. So that is, that's been, I, for me, it's just been a question of what, how, what avenue, what's the best way to address the myriad of injustices in our world. And everybody needs to figure that out for themselves, but definitely doing nothing is not an option. And how did you land on the hospitality industry? Um, well, it kind of landed on me. <laughs> I was organizing immigrant workers as a young attorney and organizer in New York, actually in Long Island, New York, when 9-11 happened. 
And on September 11th, there was a restaurant at the top of the World Trade Center, Tower One, called Windows on the World. And on that morning, about 73 workers died and about 13,000 workers lost their jobs in the months and weeks following the tragedy. And I was asked as a very young organizer and attorney, until then I had been organizing low-wage workers in multiple sectors. But uh, after 9-11, I was asked by um, various people who represented those workers at Windows on the World if I would start a relief center for displaced restaurant workers after 9-11. And what started as a relief center exploded pretty rapidly into a national organization fighting to raise wages and working conditions in the restaurant industry. In those early days after 9-11, once restaurant workers heard that there was a place for them to go to, we were pretty quickly overwhelmed with cries for help. First, you know, just survival after 9-11, but then my boss is not paying me, I'm being discriminated against, I'm facing sexual harassment, I've been injured on the job and there's no workers comp. We were just flooded with cries for help. And, you know, in those early years, hearing all of these cries for help, we decided to study and understand why, why, why are we being so overwhelmed with cries for help? And so we started to do what we call participatory research on the industry to understand what was happening at scale. Um, and what we found has been the basis for my books, which indicate that the restaurant industry has been the nation's second largest private sector employer, but it's also been the lowest wage employer with the highest rates of employment violations, wage theft, tip theft, sexual harassment. Um, not because there aren't millions of amazing, wonderful, conscientious employers in this industry who are largely independent restaurants, but because there has been a overwhelmingly powerful voice for the industry that's that has um, presumed to speak for the industry, which is the National Restaurant Association, which we call the other NRA. It's funded and led by the chains, but it has presumed until now to speak for everybody. And they, if you know the history, they really are the reason that the industry has had such low wages and such low standards and such high rates of employment law violations. It's been very intentional and political and historical. Well, and to dig into, you know, some of the historical stories in doing research for you, I actually learned a lot. And one of the things I learned is that uh, tipping is actually based in slavery. That's where its roots come from. Yes. Tipping is based in feudal Europe, but the subminimum wage for tipped workers, yes, comes from slavery. It's a unique American creation based on our ugly history of slavery. Um, so first, it's important to note that the restaurant industry before the pandemic was the second largest and fastest growing private sector employer in the United States, nearly 14 million workers, but that it's also been the absolute bottom of the barrel lowest paying, and that that is due to decades and decades of lobbying by the National Restaurant Association, which we call the other NRA, it represents the chains, and it's been around since emancipation, as you say, of slavery. When it first demanded the right to hire newly freed slaves, mostly black women at the time, and demand the right to hire them for free, not pay them anything and let them live on this newfangled idea that had just come from Europe at the time called tipping. Tipping did originate in feudal Europe, 
It was something that aristocrats and nobles gave to serfs and vassals, but always on top of a wage, always as an extra or bonus on top of a wage. It wasn't until the idea came to the States in the late 1850s when rich Americans started traveling to Europe and coming back and trying to show that they knew the rules of Europe that suddenly tipping was introduced, intended even in feudal times as an extra or a bonus, but slavery changed it into a replacement for wages rather than an extra or bonus. And that became law in 1938 as part of the New Deal when we got the right to the federal minimum wage for the first time, but three groups of black workers were intentionally left out. Farm workers, domestic workers, and tipped restaurant workers were mostly black women at the time. And we went from a $0 wage in 1938 all the way up to $2.13 an hour, the current federal minimum wage for tipped workers in the United States of America. And 43 states continue with this legacy of slavery uh, and 40 of those states have wages of less than $5 an hour. So now you've got the nation's largest and fastest growing industry in large part in four out of five states able to pay less than $5 an hour. And, you know, yes, some of those workers make a good amount of money in tips, but the data shows actually the vast majority of them were not able to survive on tips even prior to the pandemic. The data shows that um, most tipped workers, 70% of tipped workers are women, and that the vast majority of them work in very casual restaurants, IHOPs and Denny's and Olive Gardens, but also mom and pop diners across America. And they have struggled with the highest rates of economic instability, the highest rates of food stamp usage, and the highest rates of sexual harassment of any industry in the United States because they have to tolerate inappropriate customer behavior to feed their families and tips. All of that was prior to the pandemic. And even prior to the pandemic, there were 800 restaurants across the country, all independent restaurants that had heard about our work, had heard about this history that we published and the sexual harassment and, and the roots in slavery and had decided to move away from the system even before the pandemic. But with the pandemic, there has been such an, such an overhaul, such a new opening among so many independent restaurants around the country that are all, you know, really rethinking this system because the pandemic showed it was dysfunctional. It didn't work. Uh, and it was untenable even prior to the pandemic. Well, and there is an opportunity here, right? It's probably like the best and the worst time to, to have the discussion. Right. Um, but, you know, if you, if you look foundationally, we do have the opportunity to restructure the whole thing that's in right. a way that works for everybody. That's right. And I and so what happened? I mean, I, to me, the pandemic revealed the pre-existing conditions of the restaurant industry. You know, what happened was that six million restaurant workers lost their jobs. Obviously, millions of independent restaurants are struggling. Millions of workers are struggling to feed their children, to pay the rent, to stay in their homes, to pay electricity and food bills. Um, so 6 million of these workers lost their jobs, 60%, six zero were not able to access unemployment insurance because in most states, they were told their sub-minimum wage plus tips was too low to meet the minimum threshold to qualify for benefits. That was such a slap in the face, right. the insult to injury, but it really, there was like a light bulb that went off above workers and a lot of independent restaurant owners that wait a second, if the state, if the government is saying these wages are too low to qualify for benefits, this was probably not a tenable system to begin with. 
And then on top of that, millions of workers went back to work in the summer and the fall. And we just released a report last week about 2,000 workers we surveyed on their conditions over the last six months and found that it's been an impossible situation. The power dynamics that existed, especially for women servers and male customers prior to the pandemic that created the sexual harassment, um, because these women had to tolerate all this kind of customer you know, inappropriateness to get tips just became so much worse because tips went way down. You know, if sales went down, tips went down and workers were struggling with survival. And so any customer that comes in wields that much more power over workers, their tips become that much more critical. And so we, what we heard from workers is that I, I don't actually want to go back to work. Everybody knows what a dangerous environment restaurants are. But if I do go back to work, you know, tips are weighed down. Uh, and if I'm paid a subminimum wage, that means I am more reliant than usual on every customer that comes in the door. And therefore, I cannot enforce the social distancing and mask rules that the everybody's asking me to enforce because I need tips from those same customers that you're asking me to enforce rules on. And the customers are reacting with aggression and hostility and less tips if I try to enforce these rules. And then worst of all, about 40% of workers reported a huge spike in sexual harassment. In particular, hundreds of women reported that male customers asked them to remove their masks so that they could see how cute they were and determine their tips on that basis. In other words, judge their looks and their tips on that basis, which I have to say just so obliterates the idea that tipping is based on good service. Like, we always, the research showed forever. There's a professor named Michael Lynn at Cornell that has done his, spent his whole life studying tipping patterns. And he will tell you tipping was never correlated with service. It's always been correlated with the race and gender of the server, whether a woman allows herself to be touched or not, whether the customers find her attractive, her hair color, her eye color, her breast size, um, very offensive things that reflect the general biases of America are reflected in tipping. So uh, listen, we always knew that was the case, but now when customers are literally saying, I need to see your face, you need to expose yourself to the virus, take off your mask. You need to expose yourself to the virus so I can determine your looks and therefore your tip. It obliterates the idea that they were tipping based on how well the server was performing and just indicates that this was based on something much more egregious, nefarious, uh, improper, which is the biases, whims of customers and the male gaze, which is just not an appropriate thing. We're not asking these women to be models or prostitutes. We're asking them to be servers and they should be judged on this, their skill and professionalism. And this whole system of giving them a subminimum wage and expecting them to live on the whims and biases of customers diminishes their professionalism. And so um, to me, this is why so many independent restaurants have come to us during the pandemic and said, yes, I am struggling too, but I'm closed or partially closed. And I believe this is the time for us to rethink, reimagine, restructure compensation in this industry because the pandemic showed it was not a tenable system. And also, maybe I never thought it was a good system, but I finally have the space and the time to think about doing things differently. And so 
hearing from so many employers that they wanted to change things, we ended up working with Governor Newsom in California, Mayor de Blasio in New York City, Mayor Walsh in Boston, Mayor Lightford in, in, Lightfoot in Chicago, hopefully Governor Whitmer in Mich Michigan to provide cash grants to restaurants that commit to transitioning to a full minimum wage with tips on top and to actually providing meals to the community. And I just want to say one more thing. One of the reasons why so many employers are switching to this system is that many of them have been experimenting with it actually during the pandemic. They've had smaller crews. They've been doing takeout and delivery. They've been paying everybody a full minimum wage and sharing tips uh, among all non-management workers. And actually, that is the system we've been advocating for for a long time. We actually got a bill passed in Congress in 2018 that says if you pay the full minimum wage anywhere in the country, you can legally share tips with the back of the house. The only places where state law supersedes that and it's still not allowed is New York and Massachusetts, which we're trying to change. But everywhere else, if you pay a full minimum wage, you can share tips with the back of the house, which means a lot of employers who've been wanting to create more equity between front and back and a better system of unity and team building between front and back, understand that moving to a full minimum wage, besides being the right thing to do and the sustainable thing to do and the way to overcome a legacy of slavery, also can create a more equitable, profitable, frankly, sustainable system in the restaurant of everybody sharing the tip. So let's be clear, we're not just advocating for a full minimum wage, we're advocating for a full minimum wage for all workers and the ability then to share tips among all non-management workers as well. I love that. And, and what I want to talk about next is the net result. I was born and raised in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, spent my first 20 years there, spent my last 20 years in California. Uh, <laughs> very, very different. Uh, yeah, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. And very different payment structures for hospitality workers, right? Um, for, for the people in, let's say, Louisiana listening, where minimum wage is still, I think, $2 and change an hour for tipped employees, let's talk about the net result in places like California of one fair wage and of increasing that wage? What has it done to restaurant workers? What has it done to the restaurant industry? Yeah, I'm so glad you asked that. And I also wanna mention because sometimes people in places like Louisiana think of California as like an alien planet. <laughs> it's not just California, it's California, Oregon, Washington, Nevada, Minnesota, Montana, and Alaska. So it's not all blue states. It's not all wealthy areas. I mean, California, I don't know if people know this, but California uh, has very high rates of poverty, particularly in the Central Valley, places like Fresno and Bakersfield. California has lots of rural environments and places like Alaska are almost entirely rural. And so it is not the case that you can pay a minimum wage only in blue and urban state places. That's not the case. And in fact, what the data shows is that throughout the state of California and all of these seven states, there is higher restaurant industry sales per capita, higher industry job growth overall, higher small business growth. The chains are growing faster in these states than they're growing in Louisiana or the 43 states uh, with a sub-minimum wage for tipped workers. And on the worker side, much lower rates of poverty and one half the rate of sexual harassment in the restaurant industry. Why? Because a woman in Alaska or Minnesota, she is not as reliant on the tip to feed her kids. She gets an actual minimum wage from her boss, like every other worker in every other industry. Now she gets tips, 
but the tips are as they were always intended to be, as they were in feudal Europe, an extra or bonus on top of the wage, not the wage itself, which means if a guy tries to grab her, asks her to take off her mask, she can say no, because she doesn't have to rely on that tip as the only way to feed her kids. She knows she gets a wage. So I want to say, though, even in Louisiana, we've got great restaurant owners in New Orleans who are working with us, who got who are paying a full minimum wage with tips on top. So it's not impossible uh, in the South. It's not impossible anywhere. And we are trying to push for federal legislation that would make this a level playing field and just have everybody do it around the country. So it isn't kind of this unequal system where some people pay more and some people pay less. And um, when all boats rise, I think what the restaurant industry will see, particularly independent small business restaurants, is that their con the con community's ability to consume is going to be um, guaranteed. You know, two weeks ago, there was a great op-ed in the New York Times put out by the editorial board talking about how, uh, you know, there's a lot of focus now on big business, you know, and business in general, their survival. But if we aren't thinking about the survival of low-wage workers, we there's no future for our economy. And they describe the fact that Henry Ford, who started the Ford Motor Company, uh, pay, decided to give his workers this huge raise at the time, $5 a day was way more than any other manufacturing job, because he realized at some point that he needed his workers to be able to afford to buy the cars coming off the assembly line. Otherwise, he wouldn't have a consumption base. And we've seen the chains over time kill their own ability to have their workers consume in their restaurants. We're seeing companies like the Olive Gardens and the Applebee's stagnate in terms of growth because they're, who used to eat at Olive Garden and Applebee's? It was restaurant workers would take their families. That's, that's who would take their families and, and they're, they're, we've lost the middle, we, the working class and the middle class because $2.13 at this point is not working or middle class. It's way poverty wage. Um, and so we, we, independent small businesses to survive this crisis post pen through the pandemic and beyond, because we have to think beyond, we can't think about just now, there has to be a, a base of consumers. And especially for small businesses, they rely on the community right around them, which if we're the largest industry, so much of the community around small businesses is the restaurant workers themselves. Well, and that's really the take home, right, is that this isn't an altruistic endeavor, that it is in the best interest of independent restaurant owners and operators to offer a living wage to their staff because it will benefit them. They will see an, a, you know, a short term decrease in cash flow paired with an automatic increase in cash flow. Right. That's right. And even beyond that, the two things you just mentioned, where you pay a little bit more to your workers, you'll see the results in terms of a consumer base. But you'll also begin to see within months reduced turnover, increased uh, loyalty, increased productivity among workers, increased sales. We have documented that you know our industry has the highest rates of employee turnover of almost any industry because we pay so little as, as a whole. Not, I'm not talking about individual operators, but at a meta level, we're the lowest paying employer. And that results in very high turnover because workers are constantly churning, looking for the next opportunity that might pay them more where they could move up to survive. But what our data has shown, we surveyed 11, 1,100 restaurants across the country 
with Cornell School of Hospitality Management and found that you can cut your employee turnover in half by paying a wage that allows workers to stay in the restaurant. And ultimately they hone their craft. You know, it becomes like cheers. <laughs> people mm -hmm. can come back and see the same people that they like in the restaurant. And it creates, it is a gift that keeps giving. Well, and, and it brings up an important point, which is the, the consumer facing side of this. And, and what what is the message? Because some of this cost is going to get passed on to the consumer. There's There's no doubt. And so that's a conversation that needs to be had, right? And how would you have that conversation? How would you broach that conversation? I mean, survey after survey after survey of consumers shows that most consumers would be willing to pay more to if it meant that everybody got a $15 minimum wage, even in very red states. I mean, look at Florida. Florida, just 66% of voters in Florida voted to raise the minimum wage to $15 an hour. And by the way, the tip minimum wage in Florida is going up to 12 or 13. In Florida, on the same ballot that 52%, 14 percentage points less voted for Donald Trump. So even in places where people might vote for Republicans, Republican voters overwhelmingly support raising the minimum wage to $15 an hour and to increasing the wage for restaurant workers as well. And so, and, and then when you actually survey them and ask them about what well, will you be willing to pay more for that, they say yes. So I know it's terrifying for individual restaurants to think about raising their own prices, but when it happens at a meta level, at a policy level, a whole state raises the wage or the federal government raises the wage, what happens? In the end, everybody, everybody's wages go up and consumers are better able to actually support those higher prices because they're getting paid more. <laughs> Their wages are going up. What, what all the data shows is minimum wage goes up. That means mid-level workers' wages go up. So you see an overall rise in the economy that allows people to pay more. And frankly, that's what we need. We need prices that reflect the true cost of food and labor in a restaurant. We don't need to keep suppressing food and labor costs <laughs> so that they're impossible to, to sustain. And that's the situation we found ourselves in. I couldn't agree with you more. Um, it's an industry podcast. And at the end of every episode, I like to give the guests an opportunity to speak directly to the listeners. Do you have any words of encouragement or advice you'd like to offer? I do. I would so love to work. We would love to work with any independent restaurant owners who are listening, uh, who might consider wanting to transition to a full minimum wage or accessing cash grants, either for themselves or their employees. We've raised 28 million, almost $30 million to give out to workers and employers um, who are interested in being a part of a movement for change. And so we contact us. Um, you know, we've hired actually restaurant, independent restaurant owners who now are helping other independent restaurant owners make these transitions and get access to cash to make these transition. So join the movement. You can come join us at High Road Restaurants, highroadrestaurants.org. That's Saru J. Raman of One Fair Wage. To offer support or get support, go to onefairwage.org. If you want to tell us your story, hear previous episodes, check out our video content, or read our weekly blog, go to joshkopel.com. That's J-O-S-H-K-O-P-E-L.com. Thank you so much for listening to the show. 
you can subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. And while you're there, please leave us a review. A special thanks to Yelp for helping us spread the word to the whole hospitality community. I'm Josh Kopel. You've been listening to Full Comp.